Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance or Real Estate Finance. This is Real Estate 320. This happens to be show number five. Again, show number five out of, out of probably when we get all done, maybe around 31 or 32 shows. A couple things that I want to mention to you, at least for the class that's actively involved right now, uh, which the reason why I say that is because in the future, remember, we'll be moving this you know, in the spring to the Internet, but for right now, uh, I want to let you all know that I have encoded, or not I, but we, meaning collectively the team here, has uh, encoded the uh, show number four video, and we have uh, uploaded it to the server, and I we did that this past weekend. I also put an announcement on the Blackboard website for this class that that was done. Also, with a little description, I'll always uh, include a description of what we talked about so you can know what show one was and what contained what was in show two, three, four, so on and so forth. So I included that. And also uh, a couple other things that I want to mention to you is the fact that, you, you know, you should be watching those. Uh, as soon as we have that done, I'll send that link out or I'll send it out via email so you'll be able to know that we've done that. And what I also try to do, too, so that you can hopefully distinguish between Junk mail, if you don't want to call what we teach junk mail, and other, and, and the course mail, is I usually try to put a little thing in the subject line of the email that I'll send you that'll be like RE320, or if it happened to be another class that you were taking, I usually try to include that so you know that it's about that class. And then usually something like, uh, I think most of the normal statements I'll put in the subject line will be, uh, show number four is ready for viewing on the internet is what I've been saying. And then I usually, when you open the email up, you'll see a little description of it. That means it's going to be in two locations for your information so that you know, number one, it will be at the Blackboard website. So you can normally go through, go to the Blackboard website and go under TV shows and watch the show. The second thing that I wanted to mention to you is that um, we're also putting it at the distance education website. So, again, if you go to the Sacramento City College website, and this is so that if you, for example, had a friend of yours that wanted to take a look at it or if you wanted to see some other classes that we happen to be doing here, you can go to the Sacramento City College website and there's a little link down the bottom of the page called uh, Quick Links and everything's in alphabetical order. And you just go to distance education, and when you go there under, uh, you'll see a web page for distance education, and on the left-hand side will say ITV Archives. And you can go in there and look at the shows that I've done, also the shows that uh, Andrea Greenwald's done for biology, great teacher we have here, and also we have uh, Truman, Richard has got his accounting shows there. And then in the spring, we're going to have, where it's really exciting, we have a new lady coming in, Jessica, who's going to be doing a show in nutrition. So I know there's going to be a huge demand for that class. So, uh, again, this is a way that you can start to see how we're pr providing these kinds of uh, classes to you on TV and online. And, again, I really like this because it, it meets whatever your particular needs are. Uh, next thing that I wanted to do is uh, I think that's pretty much it for that uh, part of the, uh, of the show. I'm just taking a look here at my notes. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. What we're going to be talking about today now is, uh, oh, one more thing I wanted to mention. What you should be doing right now in the class, regardless of whatever, you should have read or be keeping up with the chapter readings. You should have downloaded the study guide, and I'm always going to have a study guide that's going to be in Blackboard at the Blackboard website. Typically, it's going to be under course materials, and I always talk about that during the course orientation. So you should have downloaded that by now. 
It's in a PDF format, which means you can open it up, and I put a link in there that you can, if you need to read it for it, you can go to the Adobe website and get it. And you should have downloaded that, and you should be looking up every single solitary question. I always highly recommend that you try to answer the questions on your own without peeking, so that that will kind of help you in figuring out what it is that you maybe need to go back and study and read or what you currently you know, really know fairly cold right now. And then, as I always recommend, is on that paper, always put down the page reference where you found the information, or if it's something that's not in the book that you have to go out to a website or something for, put down the location of where you went. So I think that's enough about that part of the class now. Today we're going to be talking about the information. Uh, we're going to be moving on to something called sources of funds in the primary market. And uh, Bob's going to be so kind here in a minute and put it up on the camera. This happens to be the page. I'm going to read a little bit of this. I've highlighted some of this. And as you can see, uh, if uh, uh, I'm highlighting a whole bunch of stuff. It's just the way I sometimes read. In fact, I had a friend of mine when I was going to uh, college and I was taking a programming class. He looked at how much I, under, uh, I was underlining and, and uh, highlighting. And he said, you know, what you ought to do, Pat, is just go out and get a paint roller. You're, you're marking everything so much. But anyway, it says... This is uh, sources of funds in the primary market. Primary market meaning where we as end consumers, who are we personally dealing with when we get ready to make the loan? That's what we mean by the primary market. Who is the person we're going down to and talking to either in person at the bank or at a mortgage bank or a broker or we're even doing it on the Internet? Okay, who is that person? So anyway, it says the discussion of this chapter will focus on individuals and institutions that make loans directly to borrowers, directly. As noted in the previous chapter, many of these lenders are local in nature and obtain their funds from deposits of local savers and businesses. However, some mortgage firms have established a national presence in the marketplace. So let's just talk a little bit about what that basically means. What we're talking about is these lending institutions, as we understand them today, the banks, like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, your credit union, whichever credit union you belong to, and we'll be talking about that in this chapter. These people get their primary funds by you going to the bank and depositing your money. And you may be doing this where you're actually going down there, standing in line, giving them the deposit. You may have it happen, happening automatically where it's going from, you know, nowadays most places that uh, most uh, employers are really prefer you to have your check direct deposited, so you know you may not actually interface on a day-to-day -day basis with the bank, but it's going in there, and then that's the bank or the credit union that you're writing checks from or using the debit card. The, uh, so basically, uh, that's, that's the institution that we're talking about. Uh, the other place that these institutions get their money from besides just you as an individual is from businesses. So, for example, when you go down to your local donut shop, coffee shop, hardware store, whatever, and we can even bring that down to the larger stores like Raleigh's and Lowe's and Home Depot and stores like that. Those people are coming in every day and they are depositing those receipts that they receive, you know, when you come in to buy your donuts. In other words, they're depositing their money. These are the people that will go in there. You'll see them maybe carrying a bank bag or a brown paper bag or whatever. And they're going in and depositing their money. So that's another source of funds that banks and institutions get their money from, those local institutions. So that's what they're talking about here, where they initially get the money from. Uh, down below here, it says, uh, one of the last things it says, however, some mortgage firms have established a national presence in the marketplace. Essentially what they mean by that is this, is that uh, 
you know, we are used to the fact of we go down to our local credit union or our local bank to borrow money. Here what we're talking about is we may have institutions like when we deal with uh, lenders, we may deal, be dealing with that lender throughout either the United States or at least within California itself. Or we may have a mortgage banker or a mortgage broker like Countrywide Funding that will have a presence in more than one state. Okay, and they're getting their money from another source, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But it's the idea that, you know, these are the people that are making the loans directly to you. They're the ones that are helping you fill out the loan application, gathering your W-2 forms, your last two pay stubs. They're the ones that are doing all of this, the originator. Okay, and then they talked about here a little bit. They said uh, the market for real estate loans dates back to the establishment of the original building, building and loan societies. That's what they called them, building and loan societies. Uh, the modern market did not begin until the Great Depression 100 years later. It was during this time that the beginnings of the viable secondary market were established. So what we really want to kind of emphasize here is in the beginning, the real estate market, as we understood it, was local in nature. The people that made the loans were local. What they basically did is that, uh, and I'm thinking of these small little towns, both here in California and throughout the United States or even internationally, where they understand that particular marketplace. For example, my wife is from, uh, is from Ireland. And in that little small little town that she's from called Glenamaty, they have a couple banks there. And that bank understands what the farmers do, what the, what the pub owners do. They understand that market really, really well. But anyway, what they're trying to emphasize here is that initially these lenders that made the loans on real estate were local in nature. They understood that local market. There was not this uh, national or statewide ability to make loans for example, within Sa from Sacramento to somebody in Los Angeles. It was all local in nature, and it was because these people could actually drive by, take a look at the property, not drive by, but ride by on a horse or in a buck buckboard wagon and take a look at the property. They could figure out what the value of it was. If it involved agriculture, they could take a look at the crops. They could take a look at how well they were growing. Uh, this, this is what we're talking about. It was local in nature. And then they go on and they say the market did not begin to until at the, after the Great Depression. The problem that's, that the Great Depression started, and when we talk about the Great Depression, we're talking about in the year of 1929. That's when the stock market crashed. And basically what happened during that period of time is that if, if, we could, if this would kind of make sense, is that everybody felt that the market was going up, the stock market was going up. And consequently, what it was like is, hey, you know, if I buy stock today, because it's continuing to go up, I'm going to be a lot more wealthier in the future or, or the next day or two. The market's going up that quickly. So what they did during that period of time is, for example, if they owned a stock in a particular company, what they would do is they would pledge their existing stock to a lender or to the mortgage, uh, to the uh, to the stockbroker, and the stockbroker would turn around and lend them more money to buy more stock. And keep in mind that what, what they were pledging was the stock that they already owned. So, in other words, the idea that pledged stock was how much it could be sold for on the market. And people kept borrowing against the stock. They'd acquire more stock and borrow against the stock. And finally, what ended up happening is that there was no value that was really being generated by these companies, and, and it was like a house of cards. What happened is everything came out from underneath, and the whole market crashed. As a result of that, there were, as I've mentioned before, a lot of people were unemployed. 
A lot of people couldn't get jobs. It was really a desperate situation. And one of the outgrowths of that Great Depression was to say, you know what we need to do? We need to stabilize the economy. We need to put some rules in effect. We need to put some laws in effect to prevent these kinds of things from happening again. A couple things that happened during that period of time was the idea of us having a standardized type of a loan uh, an FHA, when FHA came around, the Federal Housing Administration was to standardize a 30-year fixed-rate loan so that people, hopefully, after paying on, the, on a house for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, could actually have it paid off. So, in other words, we had a lot of, as a result of that crisis, we put in place a lot of rules, laws. Congress pl- passed a lot of legislation to make sure that that kind of a thing wouldn't happen again, hopefully wouldn't happen again. So, as a result of that, it was during, so it said, d- during the Depression years, so the modern market did not begin until the Great Depression, a hundred years later. It was during this time that the beginnings of the viable secondary market were established. Okay? And as we talk about this today, what we want to kind of keep in mind is the fact that what's important is standards. Standards are, standards and rules and laws are very, very important for us to operate. As an example, uh, we need to know that when we give somebody our money to buy a house, that there is a system in place that allows us to actually have something called a deed, that we can take that deed, it can be recorded, and we can show the world that, yes, we do own this property. So standards, when I talk about standards, are things like what kinds of documents do you need to have filled out when you apply for a loan? Keep back in mind that during the savings and during the uh, in the 1800s, a lot of those different lending institutions had all different types of standards. So it became very very difficult to figure out and compare the two types of lending institutions on what they were doing. So standards are very very important in the marketplace. So anyway, they're going to go on from there and they're going to talk about the savings and loans. And I highlighted a couple things. here, uh, as, as far as the industry goes, keep in mind that one of the problems that those building loan societies had, or even savings and loans in general, is the fact that they were making commitments on loans to people for an extraordinarily long period of time. They were doing that because they felt that the amount, the money that was coming in, the deposits that were coming in from individuals was there long enough that they could sort of make that kind of a decision and say, you know, I'm going to commit to lend you the money for 6% for the next 30 years. That's what we're talking about. The problem, though, that a lot of the savings and loans started to have happen to them is that people started pulling their money out of their institutions. And the reason why they did that is because they could get a higher rate of return in other places. So that's what this is going to start to talk about now. Uh, what happens is it says that there were changes, and it says the, cha- the changes were brought by by several factors. The first of these was the economic conditions were constantly fluctuating. That's why, and what we're talking about is prior to, you know, like in the 60s, 70s time frame, 1960s, 70s time frame, what was happening with the savings and loans? So it says, first of all, there was this economic conditions were constantly fluctuating. They were up and down. The forces of disintermediation created these conditions, made it difficult for traditional lenders to, to, and institutions to maintain stable interest rates that had formerly prevailed. Keep in mind that if I am taking and lending money out, 
what I have to do when I lend that money out is that I have to pay some depositor a certain amount of money. So in other words, when I, when I, Pat Hogarty, go to the bank and give them a check for, say, $100 or $1,000, and they promise to pay me a certain rate of interest, say 5%, their concept, the bank, in order for them to make money, they have to lend money that I have out at a higher rate. Okay, so they and keep in mind that they are always in competition with other places that people can put their money. Okay, not just into savings. Okay, so in other words, they're always in competition. If there's another place where people can put their money, they are going to take it out of the bank and put it someplace else. Now, if that bank has a commitment where they are have loans that they have made you know, maybe many years, several years ago at 5, 5% and 6%, but they have to pay a higher rate of interest to the depositor. That means that they're losing money, okay? So that's what we're talking about here. So what they did in order to help them compete on a better basis is that they said, you know, we need to have some deregulation. You hear about a lot about deregulation during the 70s, 80s, 90s, period of time in a lot of different industries, including not only the banking, but the lending, the insurance industry, the, the uh, banking industry, deregulation. So what they did is they lobbied for de deregulation so that they could compete with other forces in the marketplace. In other words, compete with the banks. Okay? They were successful on the most part of obtaining many regulatory relief as they saw it, but by the end of the decade, many of the traditional institutions were victims of their own axiom be careful for what you say, you might, you might get it. So in any words, what ended up happening is, is that they did get that deregulation. They were now allowed to compete in a lot of different places. Um, I can't tell you off the top of my head uh, how, how much, where the exact regulations are today, but it was not uncommon, for example, to go to different lending institutions and find out that you could, before you, it was like if I went to a bank, I would do banking with them. That's all I could do with them. I wouldn't do anything else but bank with them. I didn't get a home loan, I just banked. If I wanted to get a, a loan on a home, I went to a savings and loan. If I wanted to uh, maybe borrow money, like they'll talk about the credit unions, I wanted to borrow money on a car, I went to a credit union. Okay. If I wanted to buy life insurance, I went to an insurance company. In other words, even so those were all different financial products, I could not go to one place and get all of them. So the concept of the deregulation was to take away those regulations that prohibited me from competing in those different markets so that I could now compete head-to-head -head with them. Okay, Because the concept here is that it's like anything else. If I have a customer that walks in the door and that customer happens to be looking for, wants to put their money in the bank as a deposit, then once they're in the door, I could actually, just like I would with the grocery store, I can make more money if I could also potentially maybe sell them, you know, a home loan, insurance, uh, you, know, um, you know, investments, all those things. So that's the con concept. You know, once I get the customer, why can't I sell more? So that was the deregulation was giving these financial institutions that ability to do that. Okay. So what happened with the savings and loans? Okay, it turned out to be a great big fiasco, okay? Um, you know, as it says here, over the years, the savings and loans had carried out their historic function, function investing about 75% of their funds in single-family home residential market. That's what they were doing. They could do that. It was stable because all the most of the money they got deposited stayed for a long period of time, so there was a lower risk, okay? 
The deposits placed with the savings and loans were in the form of savings accounts and were less susceptible to immediate withdrawal than the demand checking deposits for the commercial banks. Essentially what that means is that when you go to uh, a savings and loan, which was traditionally paying a higher rate of interest, okay, what would happen is you would put your money in there and you would keep it in there. You know, this is where you put the money away for a, a rainy day. The demand deposits, on the other hand, those are what the banks had. And what the banks would do is that maybe you would go down and make your deposits today. If you were the one that owned the donut shop or the coffee shop or the hardware store, you would make your deposits today in there, which could even be the same amount of money as you know the person was making in the savings loan. But what would happen is that money that you put in there maybe would go right back out again tomorrow because you were writing checks against it for uh, uh, for um, I'm trying to think of the right word now, for people's salaries, okay, for payroll. Maybe you deposited the money today and tomorrow you were paying off the vendor, you know, the guy that brought the dough to make the donuts. So the money was kind of coming in and going right back out again, okay. So because of that, because it wasn't staying there for a long period of time, banks traditionally didn't pay as high a rate of interest rate as the savings and loans did, okay. And they couldn't see that much further ahead either as well as the savings and loans could. So anyway, between 1945 and the late uh, 1970s, the SNLs, the savings and loans, expanded their mortgage loan operations aggressively. While other lenders were afraid of the inherent risk associated with long-term conventional loans, the SNLs believed that they could concede, succeed based on their intimate knowledge of the local market conditions. All that essentially means is that, you know, if you're in the business of making home loans, and that's what you do on a daily basis, an everyday basis, day in and day out. You are just more knowledgeable on how to do it. And because you're more knowledgeable on how to do it, the chances of you losing money are less than, say, a bank that just decides to get into the business, just decides to start doing it. So they felt fairly confident that they could stay with it. Uh, it goes on, it says uh, they were able to offer higher interest rates than the commercial banks. They had no trouble attracting deposits during a period of prosperity from World War II to the 1970s, which was really, we had a lot of social unrest within the United States, but we had a fairly pro prosperous period of time during that time. Uh, after World War II, there was a huge boom and people going back to school, a lot of veterans had come back from uh, from the Second World War. There was the GI Bill. People that maybe had worked on a farm and could never afford education could now go to school. Uh, I think I saw some statistics someplace that said in some cases uh, sometimes over 50% of a school or more of their enrollment were from people that were in the service, vets coming back from overseas. Those people got really good jobs. Uh, we had the birth of a lot of different companies during that period of time. The computer industry in its basic form started taking off and providing those kinds of services. And we even built, uh, underneath the Eisenhower administration, uh, started and built the uh, interstate highway system as we know it today, Highway 80. Okay, So we built those kinds of systems during that period of time. So we had a long period of time of prosperity. Okay, So that's what they were talking about here. Anyway, because the savings and loans were restricted by the law with respect to how much interest they could pay to their deposits, they found themselves in an unfamiliar, non-comfortable position of being, being unable to offer attractive rates of return to their depositors. So that's what started to happen during that period of time. They started losing depositors. They started to leave. 
and the savings and loans are faced with, you know, these loans that they had made at lower interest rates. During this period of time, during the 70s too, when I get to the point of talking about other kinds of, uh, during that period of time in the 70s, especially in the late 70s, when the interest rates really started to go up, there were a lot of people that were trying to take advantage of the lower interest rate loans by allowing the new buyer to assume their existing loan. So in other words, as the interest rates went up during the 70s, especially near the end of the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, what happened was is maybe I had a loan on a house that I had originally gotten from the bank or let's say the savings and loan, and maybe the interest rate on that loan was maybe 5%, which was a very attractive interest rate. Typically, on most loans, the idea is when they lend the money out, they lend it on, they look at your credit, they look at your property, they lend the money to you, and then if you need to get, if you know, and then there's an expectation when you sell the property that you pay the loan off, and the new guy that gets buys the place gets a brand new loan, and you know, and pays off your loan, and then you move on. Well, what happened was is the interest rates on the new loans were very, very high. So what a lot of ha what happened during that latter part of the 70s is that a lot of people took over these existing low interest rate loans, and what happened is is now see when a bank or a, or a um, savings and loan lends money, even so they commit to 30 years, there's an expectation that probably in most cases people will sell their house within you know maybe five, seven, ten years, and they'll get their money back. Okay. Well, what ended up happening is these loans were passed on, and that further hurt the savings and loans. And there was a lot of legislation that was passed in that time to trying to force people to pay those loans off. And uh, one of the most famous cases during that period of time was Wellencamp uh, versus Bank of America, trying to force Mrs. Wellencamp to pay off the loan <laughs> rather than let somebody else take it over. So that's why there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of legislation, a lot of court cases, a lot of issues that went on that, during that period of time. Okay, so anyway, uh, let's move on from there. Basically, what happened though? Let me see if I can go down here and get the last part of this. Um, because the savings and loans were restricted at that time by law with respect to how much interest they could pay on their deposits, they found themselves in unfamiliar t territory or uncomfortable position of being unable to offer attractive rates of return to their depositors. The result was that they lost large portions of their deposits to competing investments, such as money market funds and other things like that. Um, what happened as a result of that is that, and the other problem too during that period of time, because the savings and loans did not have a uniform way of selling their loans on the secondary market, in other words, each SNL had more or less its own standard. They found out that they were not able to really, because those loans didn't necessarily meet the requirements of the secondary market, they ended up having to hold on to the loans. So there was no way that they could just make the loan or say, hey, you know, this interest, the loan on this property is a lower interest rate. Why don't I go ahead and sell it? I'll sell it at a discount, get some money, and then I can relend that money at a higher rate. They couldn't do that because their standards weren't uniform. Okay, so anyway, it ended up becoming what they call a portfolio loan, which means that they have to hold on to it. Okay, now in order to compete with this, with the deregulations, what the SNLs did is that they did two things. First, they asked for a deregulation so that they could compete in the money market funds, being able uh, being able to invest in other areas. So they wanted to move into that area. 
And the second was a gradual adoption of secondary market procedures so that they could sell their loans on the secondary market. The problem, though, is like anything else, the savings and loans ended up in unfamiliar territory where they did not understand the marketplace very well. So you go from lending on homes one day where you and your staff and your company has to now step into a different kind of an investment, a different way of doing business. So what ended up happening is they ended up entering into that and then losing money. And I'll, I'll read down here what it says. It says often uh, what the savings and loans did is they rushed into, into this kind of uh, investments. When they rushed into it, it didn't dawn on them as big as they were that, hey, you know what, if you're going to get paid more money, there's going to be a higher risk. So down here it says often the investments that were made in areas that neither the SNL nor the regulators had any ability to evaluate. In other words, you have a brand new thing, you're deregulated, you start making investments in, in, uh, and putting your money in investments that you have no idea how they're really regulated or how to really judge them. And so it ends up, or how to evaluate them. And then even the people that are evaluating you, in other words, the people that come in and audit your company or your savings loan, they don't know how to do it. So that's what we started having a problem with. The industry was led by a group of managers with good old boy mentality. Uh, there were several of those. Uh, Lincoln Savings and Loans happened to be one of the more f notorious ones that were involved in this, who were at best incompetent and worse fraudulent. There was a lot of fraud, tremendous amount of fraud that went on during that period of time. They would lend money on property where uh, they would get, uh, for example, an appraiser or somebody to give an appraisal that was that the, and put the property's value at a high, much higher value than what it was really worth. So, for example, they would actually go out and maybe have the appraiser go out and create an appraisal that maybe the property really has no more value than $100,000, but they would come back for a value of, say, $150,000. So what would end up happening is if that the person that was borrowing the money couldn't make the payments and it went to foreclosure, when it went to foreclosure, they could never sell it for enough money to actually pay the loan back off again. And it was just terrible. There was even times, there was articles in the paper where pro people had lent money on property that did not either exist or would lend it on an address, but when you went out to take a look at the address, you found out there was no house on the property at all. It was just bare land. So there was a lot of fraud going on during that period of time. So naturally, what happens when you have all of that? The whole industry sort of caves in, and guess what? Guess who pays to fix it? We do, taxpayers. And that's basically what ended up happening. We had a bailout of the savings and loans. So what happened here is it said by, the late, by late 1986 and early 87, the problem had reached such an ep epic proportions that it attracted the attention of U.S. Congress, because remember, Congress never seems to get involved with anything until it's an absolute crisis. So now we're in a crisis situation. Who held hearings to determine how to rescue the nation's financial system. The result of these hearings was the Financial Institutions Reform, Recovery, and Enforcement Act. That's the act that was passed to say, you know what? We, Congress, have realized that there's a heck of a lot of shenanigans going on here. And people are losing money and a lot of fraud going on and a lot of not following good business rules. So we're going to start taking some action to turn this, this actually this huge problem around going in another direction. So they had a number of different acts and a number of different laws that happened during this period of time. And uh, I'm just going to 
you can read this, but I'll just shoot out a couple of these. Um, you had the Financial Institutions Reform Act. Uh, this, this act here, it says the Financial Institution Reform and Recovery Act, Enforcement Act, governs all financial, uh, federally regulated transactions. And fed, federally regulated means that even so you're, it may be where the money is coming from. Okay, it may be that it's not it, you're dealing with a local institution, but it's an FHA loan or it's a VA loan. It's federal. Federal is involved one way or another. So anyway, we had this organization that came in. So some of the other things ha that had a result of this is another result of the bill was the minimum standards for lending and underwriting and appraisal were set in place for all lending institutions that either regulated that were either regulated by the federal government or have access to federal funds. So again, standards. So you could go to a lending institution and you could ask them now for the application, you know, to get a loan. And they use the same, I'm talking about the application, the formal application, not the something that they just get the basic information, but the formal application is the same. Because they want to make sure that all lenders are capturing the same types of information. The appraisals have to be done by a licensed appraiser can't be done by somebody that decides to take uh, an appraisal class and hang a shingle out. You have to be licensed, okay, because as an appraiser, you're making a judgment on the value of that property that in the event of a foreclosure, guess what? That's what the bank may be able to sell it for. So we have start to have standards, okay? And standards go in any other industry. We see that a lot in computers, for example. You know, we, you know, that's one of the things I have to, you know, trying to, when I convince my students, uh, that are taking computer classes from me, that's why we have standards. Like, for example, when you get ready to buy a computer monitor, that monitor is set up with the connectors on the back so that it'll fit a regular computer. Okay? When you buy a mouse, it will work on any computer. The idea is that it's built to a standard, so it's interchangeable. That's what we mean by standards. Uh, just like when you look at the wheels on your car, there's a standard on how it bolts on, so they all work the same. That's what standards are. Okay, so what it does is it says underneath this, this Recovery Act, they had something called the Office of Thrift Supervision was formed to regulate the SNLs, to regulate them. Okay, this had, uh, had been handled by the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, which was eliminated by this operation. So, in other words, it got rid of that board and it put this organization in place. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was granted initial responsibility for the Resolution Trust Corporation, which was formed to liquidate the assets of the fraudulent failed SNLs. <coughs> what happened was is that the SNLs ended up stuck with all this property that they had made loans on. So if you can imagine this. I have this savings and loan. It has my name on the outside. I have now lent money out to these people to buy homes, to maybe fix them up, to maybe refinance them. Now all of a sudden those people, because we haven't used really good practices, have now... Uh, have not have now maybe not been able to make the monthly payments. Now what ends up happening is I end up having to foreclose on the property, so I have it back. And then I find out, well, I probably already knew this ahead of time, but as an SNL, I find out that I've made all these loans on property, again, that maybe it's only worth $100,000, but I've lent $150,000. So I end up, so the whole idea of this office of, um, 
the uh, OTS, OTS, the whole purpose of that office was to get rid of and liquidate. In other words, say, you know, listen, this house I know has a mortgage against it for $150,000, but we need to sell it and get money back in again to get the whole, you know, get rid of the houses and start the money flowing again. That was their point, okay? So what they did here is, um, let me see if I can find out here. Let me see. It was granted for the RTC. It was formed to liquidate the assets of the failed SNL. By the time this was complete, hundreds of SNLs ceased to exist. They completely went out of business. A lot of people went to jail. Okay, lots of people went to jail. Uh, this organization also eliminated the old Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation. Okay, it's not FDIC, it's, F, uh, it's FSLIC, granting FDIC permanent responsibility for managing the savings and loan uh, savings association insurance fund, which replaced the old FLIC for the savings and loans. Okay, so it was to turn this whole entire mess around. Okay, that was the point of this. So what did we learn from this? What we learned from this is the fact that the bottom line is, is that in order for us to function in the real estate industry, at least in the real estate industry, successfully, we have to put in place a set of standards in which we use those standards to determine value of the property, such as appraisal, that standards that tell us what kinds of information we need to collect about people's income, okay, how much money they make, how long they've been on the job, uh, you know, their sources of income, what their credit rating is. We need to collect all that before we as a lender can finally make a decision on whether or not this person should really be, should be, really be allowed to borrow this money from us. And I think that's really important because, you know, to lend people money to buy something like a home when maybe they are not financially capable of buying it is really doing them a disservice. There are people that in some cases you need to say to them, listen, you know, you're working hard, you're doing a good job, you're putting some money away, but to be honest with you, committing 50% of your income to a house payment right now is not a good idea. It's not a good idea for you as a consumer. It's not as a good idea for a business decision for me. So maybe what you need to do is maybe rent for a while longer. Maybe you need to get a second job. Maybe you need to put some more money away before you actually do buy this house so that you now you know when you buy it that you're financially capable of making the monthly payments. And then that way I don't have to worry about coming back and taking it back from you. And another thing, so we learned that. We also learned the fact that, hey, if we set those standards, those standards that we've set are now uniform throughout anywhere. So if we go to another bank, we're still going to have more or less the same standards in order for us to qualify that person and that property to make that loan. Okay, and that's really important, really, really important. Banks are not, banks and lending institutions are not set up to manage real property. They're managed to make loans and to collect the monthly payments, not to sit there and take properties back and manage them and have people that have to go over and fix pools and, and mow the grass and all that. That's not their job. They don't want to do that. They lose a lot of money. So that's why it's really important that we follow these standards. Okay, so anyway, that's the idea behind the savings loan. Commercial banks now, which is another one that you go to to get loans, now because of deregulation, started to enter into the business, okay? But commercial banks, they are the largest source of investment funds in the country today. Uh, and I'll just read, it says here, relative, until relatively recently, uh, residential mortgages were not a major part of the business, uh, of their business, primarily because government limitations on the amount of long-term investments that could be made. 
Those limitations were imposed because the vast majority of deposits held by commercial banks are demand deposits or checking accounts, which means I can go in there tomorrow and say, write a check and say, give me my money, okay, uh, which are payable on demand whenever the, uh, they want it. So anyway, you're going to see now that uh, what's happened now is that more and more banks, I mean, today, I mean, it's been going on for years now, banks are the place where you can go and get a loan. So, uh, and you see those now, if you're in the store shopping, like at a Raleigh's, there's usually a Wells Fargo. If you're at uh, Safeway, there's a Bank of America. Uh, in fact, I even encourage people that are looking to buy their first home or even shopping for a loan to go to those places and ask them, you know, they can f usually fairly quickly give you a rough idea on how much you could be able to borrow. Uh, they can tell you what your monthly payments are going to be. So uh, commercial banks are more and more into this business than we than in the past, okay? So um, they usually make the loans. Uh, they'll make the loans, but usually what they'll do in, in many cases is that they'll sell them on the secondary market. And what they'll do is they'll make the loan. So how, how does the bank make its money? First of all, it makes its money by actually taking an application from you and then charging you some sort of a fee to make the loan. That can be in a lot of different ways. It may show itself in a, as a loan application fee. It may be involved in some kind of points. It may be, uh, you know, they may be making money in their document fees. There's a lot of different ways that they can make money by originating the loan. Once they make the loan, then the next question is, is, is that they're either going to hold on to it or they're going to sell it. If they turn around and they hold on to it, that's called a portfolio loan. If they sell it, they sell it in the secondary market. Now, remember, once you make get that loan on the house, the next thing that has to happen is you have to make monthly payments. And that's called in the loan business servicing. So what that means is that we can actually have where the loan is held by somebody else like Fannie Mae, but the servicing is actually done by Bank of America or done by Ohio Savings or done by Wells Fargo. And what that means is that they have a department. That's the place where you send your money for your loan, your monthly payment, you may send your payment, might include principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. What they'll do is they'll turn around, they'll pay the insurance, they'll pay the taxes, and they'll turn around and collect the or pay the interest and the principal back to the person that has the loan. They charge a fee for that. It's not something that you want to get into yourself tomorrow. I mean, there are, you have to do thousands and thousands and thousands of these, but that loan servicing is, ends up being a profit center that they can make some more money. And actually... Lending institutions sometimes will actually sell or buy and sell those servicing commitments. And it's not uncommon, for example, for you to go to like to a mortgage banker or broker, get the loan. After you have the loan for a period of time, you may find out that your initial payments were going to that lender. And after maybe four, five, six months now, they'll tell you that they're going to, you have a new lender or you have a new place to send your um, loan payment. Okay. And, the, and uh, like in my case, I, I got a loan. When I built my brand new house, I made my first couple payments to that company. After that, I got a letter in the mail said, you now make your payments to Ohio Savings and Loan, and that's where they go from now on, okay, something like that. So they're the ones that make all the servicing. Okay. Uh, okay. The next thing that we want to talk about is something called credit unions, Okay. Credit unions, as they say, is another place where you can go and get a loan. And uh, the next time I'm going to show you some stuff on the website, what credit unions, what kinds of loans they'll do, and some of these other organizations. But 
It's kind of funny, when I read this in the book, getting ready to review this, it says credit unions were set up in 1970 as a membership association made up of employees who worked for individual institutions with common association of interest. I can think back, I belong to a, a credit, my first credit union I ever belonged to was something called Mather Credit Union. It was out at Mather Air Force Base. Uh, in order for you to belong to that credit union at the time that I initially joined it, which I think was, uh, I was, uh, I think was 1972. You, I think it was 72. It was a small, itsy bitsy little teeny weeny credit union. It was on the military base. They had an old barracks that they were located in. They weren't even, I think they were on, uh, not the second floor, I think they were on the first floor. Very, very small operation. People that belonged to it were people that were active duty military, uh, retired military, people that were like in the, in the reserves, National Guard, and also uh, federal civil service belonged to that. And the whole idea of the credit union at the time is that we kind of felt uh, the way it was organized is that we put our money in there. We also had the opportunity to elect somebody to run the day-to-day or the board, as we called it, uh, that ran the uh, that. Uh, Ran the day, not the day-to-day operations, but appointed people to run, like, and made the policies. And those people were people that we could elect. Like, for example, on the board might be somebody that was our, a master sergeant or a captain or a colonel on the base. And so it was a small operation. We felt really comfortable because we felt that we were never going to be taken advantage of. We thought that they were really kind of watching out for us. At that time, the kinds of loans that you typically would get from them would be things like for cars, motorcycles, uh, personal loans to buy things. That was the kind of loans that you went there to get. Uh, what was nice is that they were usually located in most of those places locally, right on where you worked. And if you've ever been like in the military, you can be out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, at least you have a credit union, you have a bank to go to. In fact, it seemed at most bases that I ever went to, you had a Bank of America and you had a credit union. Those were the two financial institutions that you had. And so what happened over the years, and I think part of the reason why maybe, uh, and the other thing, too, is that you couldn't allow just anybody to join. In other words, I couldn't go down and say to my next-door neighbor who maybe had no affiliation with the military at all, say, hey, listen, why don't you go down and make the credit union? They've got a really good deal on new car loans. They couldn't do it. They had to have an affiliation with it. Uh, in other words, it had to belong. And then as time went by, and probably I would say uh, you had a lot of other credit unions, like, for example, in the state of California, we have a st- uh, teacher's credit union. We have a state employee's credit union. We have a lot of different credit unions that have the reason why you belong to that is because of the fact that you also work at that company or that organization. What happened over the years, though, is the fact that, especially like I could look at, say, for example, Mather as the one that I belong to, you know, less people were belonging to it because the military was downsizing and the bases were closing. And as that happened, you know, the credit union had had a decision to make. You know, are we going to stay in business, you know, continue to operate, or are we just going to say, you know what, the base is closing down or, you know, our organization is closing down, we'll just close ourselves and go out of business. Or what they started to do during that period of time is the first thing that you would observe is they started to extend who could be a member. So, for example, instead of saying, well, you know, in the beginning you had to be in the military or civil service and it was you or your wife or your children, now it could be like you, your wife, your children, or your aunt and uncle, okay? And then it kept extending out that ability to join. In other words, they kept looking for new members. And... uh, 
And uh, so that it might be your aunt and uncle. And then, well, not only your aunt and uncle, but now your kids could join. Well, what ended up happening is, in a lot of cases is the fact that these credit unions on their own couldn't operate, so they started to consolidate, if you will. The credit union that I call Mather today is called Heritage. Uh, and they continually are consolidating operations, continuously on a regular basis. Um, so kind of keep that in mind. That, that, that's what we're talking about. Now, over that period of time, they have gone on to make other kinds of loans. So if I go to the credit union today, I can go in there and get a new car loan, a used car loan, a car, uh, a loan for a boat. And I can get a loan to buy a house. I can get a loan to, uh, you know, to buy uh, for, uh, like, for example, if I wanted to build a swimming pool and I wanted a loan, I can go to them. So there are another place now that I can go and get loans on real estate that maybe in the past I couldn't. When I first joined, I think it was personal loans and it was share-secure loans, meaning you could borrow money against deposits you already had, and that was pretty much it. Now they've expanded. And I think the services that they offer really depend upon the size of, of that, that, uh, say that credit union's current membership and, and, and number of locations and so on and so forth, okay? Okay, so credit unions is another source, okay? I will talk the next time that we meet about something called credit unions online. I've got some things that are on the uh, Blackboard website that I've got some links up there that will show you how to quickly get to all the credit unions in the United States, no matter where they're located, and find out what kinds of programs they have available, and I'll be going through that. Okay. The next direct lender, or not direct, but indirect lender now, these are people that you may not realize it, but they are also in the loan business making loans on real estate. The first one that they talk about as an indirect lender is a pension plan. And they talk about the fact that, uh, you know, they talk about the fact of how pension plans really came about. Uh, they basically said um, pension plans were an outgrowth of the economic uncertainty of the 1930s. So in other words, if you think back to that stock market crash that we had in 1929 in that depression, one of the things that happened is a lot of the people that were working had no retirement at all, none. So when they got ready to retire, they had no income. And that was during a period of time that when you got ready to retire, you hoped that you had your son or your daughter would take you in and take care of you in your old age. You had no other place to get some income. If you were a normal, everyday, average worker, you had no retirement plan at all. So what happened was, is Americans started taking a look at it and saying, you know, this is ridiculous. We need to have some way that if I'm going to work all these years for this company, that I'm going to get to the end and have some kind of retirement system or retirement plan put together. So what it says here is, is American workers insisted on plans that allowed them to set aside a portion of their paychecks to save for retirement. That's what they demanded. I don't want to end up like mom and dad did. I want to have a retirement when I get to that age. So it says large corporations, you know, in other words, the IBM, General Motors, Ford Motor Company, things like that, realized that there were tax advantages. So Congress had implemented tax advantages for the employers to put money aside for people. So it became much more uh, prominent, if you will. They also realized that, you know what, and this is true of a lot of people, you may work for a company for five or ten years, and you would maybe move to another company for more money, except you turn around and say, you know what, I have a retirement plan now. 
That's what keeps us. Once we're in the door and we're happy with the company and we've been there a number of years, what keeps us at the company so we don't leave and they always have to hire somebody else is the benefits we have. Retirement happens to be one of them. Health care is another one. Uh, things like vacation time, sick time, those are all reasons why we stay with the company. So they turned around and they said, you know what, we can hold on. People will, will have less turnover and more people will stay with the company if we give them or provide some kind of retirement for them. Okay, so that's why we came along with this. Then it's had here, it says, with the uh, enactment of the Employment uh, Employee Retirement Income Security Act, all such plans became relatively well-managed and safe. So essentially what that act did in 1974 was to add, again, some more stability to it. It said, you know what, if you're an employer, you just can't collect the money from your employees and put them in some stupid investment. If you do that, you're going to be held liable for it. So in other words, it started to add some structure to this retirement plan system. Okay. Um, Below that, it just says, you know, well, what do they do with the money that you give them? Okay, what does the, uh, the pension plan do? It says, traditionally, pension funds have participated in the marketplace in two areas. First of these is direct investment in commercial real estate development. Also, by the way, you know, uh, these pension plans invest in stocks, bonds, mutual funds. They invest their money in a lot of different things because when you think about this for a minute, what a pension plan has to do is they have to be able to take the money that you give them on a monthly basis or every payday and some future date, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, when you get ready to retire, they have to have the money available for you to retire on, you know, for whatever period of time. So what they need to do is they have to take your money that you, they, you give them and they have to put it in pretty, really good investments so that at number one, it, it, it at least will have hopefully the spending power, you know, in other words, you want to make sure that $100 you gave them today is worth $100 at 30 years from today. So in order to do that, they have to invest the money, okay? And they also want to make sure that they want to make sure it's safe and it's secure. So they, they, do, they do invest in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, all kinds of things. One of the areas that they invest in is in real estate. And they invest in a couple different ways. Uh, first uh, of these ways that they do is by direct investment in real estate development. So in other words, a pension plan might be the one that may go together with the real estate developer to build a shopping center, an office building, uh, you know, movie theater, something along that line. So they actually will participate in that, okay? They are the important source of funds for developers and builders. When we talk about, if you see these huge, uh, that's what a developer does. A lot of people wonder, what does a developer really do? A developer is really somebody that puts the transaction together. Like, for example, if you take a look at somebody that we all have heard of, somebody like a Donald Trump, doesn't mean that Donald Trump literally owns that, all that property himself free and clear. He actually has partners that he puts together to buy those properties. He has pension plans. He has a lot of people. That, so he earns his compensation by finding the property, selecting it, making sure that hopefully it will perform, turning it around if necessary, and operating it on a day-to-day -day basis. And then maybe sometime in the distant future he may sell it, and then everybody will profit from that. Okay, that's what he does. But he's a developer. He puts people together. And in the movie business, we would call that a producer. <laughs> okay, that's what he's doing. Okay. Uh, the second of these pension funds invest in bond issues in the secondary market. So in other words... When Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Ginnie Mae, those people need money, 
if you remember back, and we'll talk about it again, what those, what those secondary market does is where do they get the money to buy the mortgages? They get the money to buy the mortgages by issuing bonds. Who buys the bonds? Pension plans do. Okay, Pension plans buy those bonds, which is, which is secured by those mortgages. Okay, So that's, that's where the money initially comes into that secondary market. And where does the money, where does the pension plans get its money from? It gets it from you and I. Okay, from us putting our, you know, our, our weekly or biweekly or monthly pay or contribution into the plan. However, the conservative managers of most funds have been unwilling to directly enter the mortgage lending market. What that essentially means is this, that the pension plan is not set up to have Pat Hogarty go down there and say, excuse me, I want to buy this nice three-bedroom, two-bath house with a pool in the backyard. They don't have that structure in place. If you think about it and you drive around, you don't see signs that say uh, real estate pension plan uh, loans or, you know, you know, ABC pension company makes real estate loans. You don't see that. They're not set up. They don't have the structure. They don't have the expertise. They don't have the ability to do that. So the way that they participate on that is by making the loans. They don't participate, but they're making it through somebody we call like an intermediary that's doing it, okay? All right. Another place that we can get money, and we're getting close to the end here, is insurance companies. Insurance companies can be very, very, very stable because what happens is is that you are giving them, you know, in the olden days we used to have something called a life insurance policy. In other words, it lasted your whole life. It had fairly high premiums. When you paid the money out, except for the fact that you could get maybe a loan against it, usually you did not get a high rate of return. So, in other words, the, the insurance companies, especially life, life insurance companies, tended to make a really, really good amount of money, and they had a lot of money to invest. Again, they need to take that money and, fi- and find some place to put it because when you die, there's an expectation that they're going to go ahead and pay your beneficiaries. So they have to find some place to invest the money. Again, they're not set up. You know, again, think about it for a minute. If you go down the street tonight or today and drive around, you're not going to see Mutual of Omaha Real Estate Loan Company, okay, or uh, Massachusetts Life uh, Loan Company. What they do is they turn around and they make loans usually on large projects, such as shopping centers, office buildings. They also invest their money in these mortgage-backed securities. That's how they do it. So we're pretty close to the end. We're going to pick up there the next time. Next time, I'm also going to be showing you some um, websites that I think are important that help back up this information so that you're able to see it. And I'll also have links to those websites at the Blackboard class website. Thank you very much for coming, and we'll see you back here again for show number six.